Los Angeles. Welcome back to another episode of the Apologetics.com radio show. My name is Jason Gallagher, and tonight we are challenging believers to think and thinkers to believe. I am an elder at the Branch of Hope Church, and uh, Branch of Hope is also the sponsor of tonight's show. We've been partnering with Apologetics.com for oh, a good decade or so, and we are a Reformed Presbyterian church that meets in Torrance, California every Sunday at 10 a.m., and our uh, pastor, Pastor Paul Vigiano, can also be heard every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., right here on KKLA as well. Uh, Apologetics.com is a listener-supported show, so I would encourage you, if you have been blessed by the show or want to support an apologetics program that defends the faith right here in the Southern California area, visit our website, Apologetics.com, and you can click on Give, make a tax-free donation to our ministry. Uh, None of the regular hosts here take a salary. We're all volunteers. I'm actually a engineer by by vocation, but everything we do as a ministry is really made possible by generous donations from our listeners like you. Um, God has allowed us to be here on the air for over 20 years now, so we just thank the Lord for His favor and blessing, and you know, however He works through you and uh, our donors, you know, we just praise Him and thank Him uh, for all of that. With that, I would love to chat with you tonight. I am here in studio all by my lonely self. I usually have a guest with me, but decided to kind of roll solo tonight. So if you're feeling kind of chatty this late Friday night, love for you to give us a call. You can reach us at 888-995-5552. That's 888-995-KKLA, so pretty easy to remember there. Um, I'd love to chat with you or answer questions you might have about the Bible, the scriptures, Christianity, or even uh, exchange contrary perspectives with you. If you're uh, perhaps an unbeliever listening in, I uh, would be happy to, to dialogue about any questions you have about uh, the Christian faith. And so, you know, our main prayer here as we, you know, challenge thinkers to believe, is that unbelievers would be challenged uh, to really believe the Christian faith, to abandon your unbelief, uh, be reconciled to God. Um, and really, we want to see people come to Christ, be forgiven of their sins, and, um, you know, forgiven. You know, that's our heart. That's our hope. Uh, you know, we genuinely care and love, you know, all people, and we want them to know uh, God and the Creator. And so for believers, you know, we pray that you would be encouraged and equipped to really proclaim God's truth and defend His Word in your own lives, your families, your workplaces, and the public squares, and even in your churches, really, you know, and that's kind of tangential to what we're talking about tonight. You know, there are really so many churches these days that are more concerned with maybe entertaining people or creating large social clubs rather than, you know, just proclaiming the whole counsel of God. And I think that there's a great need for truth to be proclaimed, even in the churches we attend. Um, You know, the condition of our culture today, right, where we see America, uh, did not happen overnight, and it did not happen in the absence of a plethora of churches in America, right? And for the culture to be in the condition it's in today, you know, I was just reading Wikipedia earlier, and it estimates still... 210 million professing Christians in America, 210 million out of maybe 300 million, 140 million of which are Protestant. So that's more than half the nation 
professing Christ, and if all those churches, right, where those Christians are attending were proclaiming true biblical Christianity, our nation would not be in the state it's in today. So um, I think that, you know, tells us that there's lots of work to be done, um, both in the church and outside of the church. And so the work I wanted to focus on tonight, uh, where I believe there's really a lot of ground to be gained, is in the arena of uh, science and scientific thought. All right, and so the title for tonight's show is The Science of Knowing God. And it's a bit of a play on words, right? I don't think there is a scientific formula that we can use to get people to believe in God, but here's my thesis, right, that I've been thinking about for, for a while now, right? People who have a dogmatic commitment to science, right, as the end-all, be-all arbiter of truth, right, and those who are scientists, who have PhDs, etc., or even just laymen who love science, um, which I do, you know, I believe, you know, if all men are without excuse, right, because of the creation that we live in, um, and we'll read that from Romans 1 uh, in just a minute here, um, then scientists, right, who cling to science, you know, so ardently, um, they are without excuse to an even higher degree than the average person, right? And my goal is to kind of unpack that thesis tonight and show exactly why scientists, those who believe so ardently in science, are really without excuse. So let's take a look at Romans 1, <clears throat> verses 20 through 23. So hear now the word of God. And it says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And so the main kind of focus is really verse 20, right? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. God's attributes, his character, his divine nature are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, right? It says, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so there's a clarity here. There's a clarity of seeing who God is simply by seeing the creation around us, which all of us, every human being, whether they've gone to the beach, they've looked at the sunset, they've looked up to the stars on a, on a dark night, in some way, they've seen creation around them. They've seen the glory of, you know, the animals or the flowers or the trees or something. And it's a glimpse of the Creator. We're actually seeing something and learning something about God through the creation. And so those people who love science and who even do science they are even more without excuse because they are so up close and personal with creation and with the study of creation every day of their existence, every day that they go into work and do science or, you know, whatever it is that they're doing. And so 
that's kind of uh, the work that I wanted to focus on tonight. And I'm a scientist by training and an engineer by vocation, right? I, I received a master's of science from Stanford University. Um, so if you're familiar with the recent launch of uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, I was a design engineer on that SunShield subsystem of that spacecraft for six years of my career uh, before I moved on to something else. And so I live and I breathe in the theory and practice of science every day. I take, I take all the science that I know and understand and love, and I apply it to you know, practical, real-world uh, challenges and problems. And so um, you know, whether or not you consider yourself mathematically or scientifically inclined, you know, one of my hopes is that as you consider some of the things I have to share with you this evening or morning, I suppose, uh, you'll come away with an appreci appreciation for science, not only as a way of understanding, you know, the mechanics of the world around us, but as a means for praising God, right, for serving those around us and for reaching those around us with uh, the gospel. And so, you know, in some of my, you know, discussions about this topic, you know, we can talk about, you know, what is the nature of science? And we'll touch on that real briefly, right? Science is basically knowledge, Right. The word science comes from the Latin word scientia, which basically just means knowledge. There's another aspect of science, which is more of this uh, methodology, right? This idea of a, of a man or a woman with a lab coat going into a lab and running experiments. It's the scientific method, right? You make predictions, you make theories, you uh, run tests, you gather data, you make observations, you draw conclusions. And you kind of iterate on that process until you discover patterns of, you know, the way the world works. And then you're able to take those patterns and turn them into hypotheses or laws or equations that we know will, you know, predict something that's going to happen in the future. If you launch a ball at a certain speed, at a certain trajectory, you can predict exactly how far that ball will travel, how high it will reach, and where it will land. You can predict that exactly with the laws of motion. You know, you can send spacecraft into outer space, and you'll know exactly the orbit that spacecraft is going to be in. You'll know exactly how long it could stay in that orbit and how much fuel you're going to need based on, you know, the laws of motion that are just applied to planetary objects. And so there's this beauty and glory and majesty and power to science that uh, we love and we are in awe of, and it's really a reflection of our creator, right? And then there's, there's the principles of science, right? There's uh, the the foundational assumptions that make science possible. You know, some of those things are the laws of um, what we call induction, this idea that the future will be like the past. Um, that is something absolutely essential to science. If we did not believe that tomorrow when we rolled out of bed, that when we put our feet on the ground that we would stick to the ground rather than float off into space or float up into the ceiling, uh, we couldn't do science, right? If we didn't believe that the laws of aerodynamics were going to work tomorrow, we would never get in an airplane and fly across the, for, across the globe. But we trust that those laws are not going to change mid-flight, right? 
And those sort of things, those assumptions that every scientist takes for granted, don't make sense in an evolutionary worldview. They don't make sense in an atheistic worldview, right? You can't believe that tomorrow is going to be like today in an evolutionary or atheistic worldview, right? There's no reason why, you know, evolution, the whole mantra of evolution is change, descent with modification, you know, change over time. But for some reason, we don't apply that to any of the laws of science, right? The evolutionists know that the scientific laws are going to be the same tomorrow as they were today. Yet they don't have any basis for that. Yet Christians ground that in the, uh, in the truth of Scripture, right? God said that he will uphold uh, seasons and years and, you know, winter and summer in Genesis 8. He said that he will uphold all of those things. There will be patterns of regularity that we can count on, that we can trust. And so when we, th- when we come to the world and we say, you know, what we do today is going to be applicable tomorrow, the sun's going to rise tomorrow just like it did today, that's because God is upholding and sustaining the universe, the world, in a logical and orderly manner. And then there's the reliability of our senses and reasoning, you know, um, there's a lot of philosophy and stuff, um, great philosophy being done in that arena. And, you know, the, in, again, from an evolution, evolutionary perspective, why should we trust our senses and reasoning um, to, to discover the world around us and to make accurate predictions? You know, how do we know that our eyes are telling us what's accurately in front of us or our, our brain is accurately interpreting those things? There's no real basis for that. Right? It could change tomorrow. Um, but God, who has created our eyes and created our senses and given us our mind, again has told us that we could rely on those things, that what we see we can proclaim. You know, God actually commands us you know, what we have seen and what we have heard. We should proclaim those things, and that assumes that what we see with our eyes and hear with our ears can be trusted. You know, God even says that we should proclaim those things that we see and hear especially those things that come from his word. So those are some of the kind of foundational principles that allow science to be possible that can't be accounted for if you deny God or if you deny the Christian worldview. And so, you know, that was real brief, those first kind of couple points. The second, you know, another point, the third point is is that science uh, has certain limitations, right? There's operational science and there is historical science. There's, you know, science that happens, you know, the kind of science that I do where we create space telescopes, where we're creating, you know, robotics and automation and amazing technologies and, you know, medicines and sending people to space and the iPhone and cars and all of that stuff. That's science that's happening right here, right now. We're doing it today. Then there's a whole aspect of science where people are trying to understand what happened in the past, right? Where did we come from? How did we get here? You know, when did the universe begin? How, you know, how old is the earth? And those sorts of questions. And it's important to know that that's a completely different category of science. You can't go into a lab and recreate life coming to into existence. You can't go into a lab and, and recreate, you know, uh, the origin of the universe. So, Right off the bat, you're in a different category of science, and that needs to be addressed. 
that needs to be uh, understood. You know, so when someone who is a great scientist who you know invented uh, amazing technologies today then puts on the hat of trying to tell us what happened in the past and how we got here, they're outside of their you know area of expertise, and we have to understand that right away. Um, a simple analogy in this regard to kind of highlight or expose this fact is to think about um, think about yourself walking into a uh, a bathroom and you notice that the bathtub is just about overflowing with water. Not quite, but just about to overflow with water. It's completely full and you look at the faucet and it's just dripping into the bathtub. Every three seconds or so, a little drop of water comes out of the faucet and is going into the bathtub. And so you look at that picture, you see the full bathtub, you see the drops of water coming out of the faucet, you run some quick you know, mathematical equations, you take the, you know, the volume of water, it's 50 gallons, you have the rate of water going into there, you divide it, and you realize, wow, it's taken 44 days for you to get that much water in the bathtub. So this faucet must have been dripping for 44 days to get to this condition that you see now. So that's great. Science, equations, simple math, you got your answer, 44 days. However, you then find a note right next to the bathtub. And the note says this, it says, I turned the water on full blast for five minutes, filled it up to 48 gallons, and then I turned it down to a drip. Yours truly, John. And so you have this note now that tells you what exactly happened when you, that you weren't there to observe. And so you have four, 48 gallons filled up in five minutes, and then the last two gallons, it's been dripping. And so you run your same exact equations and you find out, wow, it's taken five minutes plus two days to fill up this bathtub. And so it's all the same math, all the same science, except your answer now is two days instead of 44 days. And the only difference was that you took into account some historical information about past events that you didn't have previously. And it changes your entire answer. It doesn't mean the science is wrong. It just means we need to take into account the eyewitness accounts that we have in front of us to come to the right conclusion. And so you can see when you apply that to things of the past, like where did we come from, how did we get here, if you completely ignore the historical record of Scripture, you're going to come to a completely different answer. You can use all the same science, all the same equations, but if you fail to take account of the eyewitness account of what actually happened, um, You'll, you'll have two competing worldviews, and that's what we have today. And so we need to understand it's not a matter of the science that happens in the labs. It's a, it's a matter of the worldviews that, that comes to the science. And so that kind of gives us a little bit of a background, a little bit of a framework which, with, with which to have this discussion about science and these attributes of God that the Scriptures say are clearly seen being understood through what has been made. And I think this is an area of apologetics that I haven't seen navigated 
you know, I haven't read any books or come across um, apologetic teachings that kind of focus in on this particular area. There's a lot on kind of what I just went through about the laws of induction or our senses and reasoning or kind of the prerequisites for science and how they only make sense in a Christian worldview. But I really wanted to look at this. I think it's fascinating, um, and I think it's super powerful. And I want to kind of kind of like frame it again with a little kind of story. I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, a gentleman named Walter O'Brien. He's uh, a brilliant man. He's got the highest IQ. I think he's the top four highest IQ in the world today. He has 197 IQ. And he is the, he's kind of the, the true life story to, to the CBS show called Scorpion. It's a, it's a cool uh, CBS show, and it's about these geniuses who solve these incredibly hard problems. And uh, it's a real world thing. Scorpion is a real thing. Scorpion is a real company. It's a science kind of computer company that will solve really any problem that people might bring to them. It's it's incredible. And so I was listening to Walter O'Brien. He was talking about head transplants, right, and the state of the art of transplanting a human head to another body. Like that's actually, people are actually attempting that, um, you know, in certain parts of the world, I suppose. And he's saying that there's many technical hurdles still to overcome, right? Lots of intricacies, you know, when you're reconnecting a vertebrae and a spine and all the nerves and arteries and so on and so forth and keeping the head cold and the body cold and not letting all the blood run out of the head when it's severed. And it's crazy to think about, but, you know, people are trying it. And there's some people who think, well, even if we're able to do this, right, mechanically, what happens to a person's soul? when their head is transplanted onto a completely different body. And long story short, you know, Walter O'Brien is personally not worried about that because, you know, I believe he's an atheist, you know, or at least an evolutionist. I know he's an evolutionist. And he basically says he's not worried about about that, the soul, because he's a scientist, right? And he says, you know, as a scientist— you know, unless something happens, you know, 32 times in a row, it's not dependable, right? If it happens 32 times in a row, it's dependable, it's believable, I can put my hat on that, right? He said religion is not in that category, right? If people witness a miracle and, you know, ha- you know, believe in some religion, he said he can, he, he can respect their belief, but he can't depend on it, right? So he rejects it. And so he's looking at this idea of dependability, right? But I hope you guys can see what he's doing. I hope you guys can kind of unpack, you know, his assumptions there, right? He's acknowledging an invisible attribute of creation, namely this dependability, this reliability, this faithfulness and trustworthiness of creation, right? And it is clearly seen, this dependability, through the understanding of creation, right? It happens 32 times in a row. It's, it's dependable, and at the same time, he's actually using this dependability to dismiss those people who believe in God, to, to dismiss religion, to dismiss God, and uh, you know those who are concerned about what would happen to our souls if we transplanted a head onto someone else's body. And we must be willing and able to expose this folly. You know, this guy's got 197 IQ, but his thinking is pretty muddy, right? And we... 
we need to be able to see this. And so the question we, we could ask him is why is science dependable? Why can we depend on something to happen 32 times in a row? Right? And the truth is, is because there's these immaterial laws which govern reality. And it's these immaterial laws, like the law of gravity, the laws of electricity, the laws of motion. These laws are dependable, right? They're faithful, they're true, they're powerful, they're eternal, they're universal, they're unchanging, and so on and so forth. And so he's, and those things, the scripture says, are clear divine attributes of the one who made them, right, of God. And so, you know, something else to think about, and we'll be unpacking all of this, you know, in the, in the second half hour of the show, but I'm kinda, I kind of wanted to kind of set this up for you guys and give you guys kind of a flavor of where we're headed. You know, something else that is very dependable is, uh, you know, death. You know, death is very dependable. <laughs> I think 10 out of 10 people die, right? And why do we die, right? It all comes back to Scripture, Genesis 1, right? If you eat of the tree, you will surely die. You know, Romans 6 kind of reemphasizes this. You know, it is the wages of sin, uh, which is death. And so as we unpack this, uh, I want to kind of reveal to you guys a way that we can powerfully uh, prove the existence of God and powerfully proclaim the gospel to these people uh, so that they might be saved. So uh, you're listening to the Apologetics.com radio show, and we'll be back right after these short messages. The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. Remember when Bob Dylan became a Christian? Is he still? Greg Lurie tells his story, along with many other rock legends, in his new book, Lennon, Dylan, Alice, and Jesus. It was such a shock to everyone when Bob Dylan came out with a record that was called Slow Train Coming and spoke boldly about his faith in Jesus Christ. In his concerts, he started talking about his faith in Jesus Christ. I witnessed this firsthand. After his third gospel record, he just stopped talking about it. So some people concluded he didn't believe it anymore. Well, I don't see any indication in my deep dive into the life and career of Dylan that would indicate to me that he has abandoned his faith. I believe that Bob Dylan had a genuine conversion. Order your copy of Greg Lurie's new book, Lennon, Dylan, Alice, and Jesus, at kkla.com, keyword books. That's kkla.com, keyword books. 
How can you guys live in California? You have to put a disclaimer on everything. I'm afraid one day it has to be in our conversation. Like I take you, Susan, to be my beloved wife for sickness and health till death do us part. Offer not valid in Wyoming, Connecticut, and California. It's the one and only Christian comedian, Nazareth, coming to the Pearson Amphitheater in Anaheim September 17th for a free comedy concert. Ever since we got the Verizon family plan, I don't have a family anymore. And I come home, one on the iPad, one on the iPhone, one on the iMac. I have to call him by the username to get him to listen to me. It's laughter for all. A free concert with comedian Nazareth in Anaheim, September 17th. Secure your free tickets. KKLA.com, keyword comedy. I live in Kuwait, 145 degrees. These people come to Arizona to cool off. Nazareth, September 17th. It's free. Secure your tickets now. KKLA.com, keyword comedy. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. All right. Good evening. Welcome back to the second half of the Apologetics.com radio show. My name is Jason Gallagher. I'll be with you for the next half hour, and we are talking tonight about the science of knowing God. And what we're really talking about is uh, kind of related to Romans 1 and how men are without excuse because through creation we can see the invisible attributes of God as we understand the things around us and what has been made. And we're talking specifically about science. We're talking how scientists in particular, since they spend most of their lives studying creation, studying the world around us, that they particularly are without excuse. And part of our job and part of our heart is to kind of help expose the fact that they already know God, you know, except that they're suppressing it you know, in their unrighteousness, and we want to help them kind of see uh, this link between creation and, you know, who God is and, you know, what his word says. And so, uh, again, if you want to call us, we're here, I'm here, you know, all by my lonely self. You can call us, and I'd be glad to chat with you. You know, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm kind of presenting an argument here that I haven't necessarily come across in this, you know, you know, way um, in literature and most apologetic literature. Um, so if you're hearing it for the first time and have any thoughts or questions about it, I'd be happy to, you know, discuss it with you. You can call us at 888-995-5552. That's 888-995-KKLA. Um, and so... You know, we were just talking about uh, a gentleman named Walter O'Brien, you know, one of the smartest men on the planet. Uh, he owns a company called Scorpion. And, you know, because he's he believes in science because it's dependable. And I love that because it kind of exposes exactly what we're talking about. And he rejects religion, he says, because, you know, it's not in that dependable category uh, the way science is. And I would say, you know, let's... Let's cling on to that. Let's find that point of commonality right there where he's saying, you know, something that happens 32 times in a row is dependable. It's believable. Okay. Amen. Let's talk through that. Let's think through that. And where does that get us? And so that's kind of what I want to unpack unpack now. And I believe this is kind of the uh, really interesting part of tonight's show. Because we've talked a bit about science as knowledge. 
We've talked about knowledge that is kind of concerned with uh, the way the physical world works, right? The scientific methodology, you know, the scientific method. And I want you all to think for a moment about what is it exactly that science is in the business of discovering, right? What did Isaac Newton really discover after witnessing those apples that always fell directly downward from the tree, right? He had an apple, I think, fall on his head or something, sitting under a tree, you know, and that supposedly, the story goes, led to, you know, him formulating the law of gravity. You know, these apples didn't go sideways. They didn't go upward. They went directly downward. And so he formulated, you know, Newton's laws of motions, and this led to many other discoveries. But, you know, he, he saw this dependability, right? And this dependability led him to formulate these laws, right? But did he discover something physical in its essence? Did he discover, did he discover something that you can put in your fridge or your freezer and come grab it whenever you wanted it, right? I find it really interesting when I talk to people around town, you know, because I share the gospel a lot. You know, I've talked to thousands of people on the streets of L.A., you know, throughout the you know, past decade. And, you know, many people, you know, I hear them say, you know, I don't believe the Bible. I believe in science, right? I don't believe in God. I believe in science. And, and so science is this big thing that people, you know, it's, it is their Bible. It is their God. And they think, I, I don't believe in God, but I believe in science. And I, we need to be able to, to take that common ground, science, because science belongs to Christ. It belongs to God. And we need to be able to, uh, you know, lovingly engage with them on that. And I think it's powerful. It's simple. And uh, we're, we're getting into it right here. And so, um, you know, they believe in science, right? They cling to science. And they, uh, they believe science is something that they can see, they can touch, they can taste, they can smell, they can hear, right? You always see that. I don't believe in things I can't see. Right? Science is tangible. I can see it and touch it and taste it, smell it. Well, um, you know, they believe it has nothing to do with the spiritual world, science. They believe it has nothing to do with immaterial truths about reality and that it avoids this whole concept of God. But is that true? So let's look for a second, or let's think for a second at some of what the scientists have discovered over the past centuries, right? You have, what do you have? You have tons and tons of laws, equations. If you, you know, I was in college, you know, Stanford, science classes, engineering classes, we were allowed cheat sheets. And what do you think we brought with us, right? We brought a sheet of paper with tons of equations written on it. The laws of gravity, the laws of motion, electrical laws, the laws of optics, the laws of acoustics. You know, the laws of fluid dynamics and aerodynamics and all of these different laws. And we thought, well, we have all these laws in the, in the papers. We, we're going to nail this test, right? Um, and so it comes back to the question, what is science in the business of discovering, right? I've taken lots of science classes over the years. And, you know, everything that we bring to a test, it's all equations. And these equations, well, we could write them down on paper, right? We see them on paper. They represent immaterial realities about the world around us. They, re they represent realities that we can't touch, that we can't smell, that we can't see. They're invisible. 
the real law of gravity that's causing us to stick to the earth right now, that's a law that has dominion over us at this very moment, and we can't see that law. It's completely immaterial. It's completely spiritual, right? And it's engaging with us this very moment. And so with that thought, we're going to jump over to a caller here. We have Connie, I believe, coming through. Let me see if I can get her on here. Connie, hey, it's Jason. You're on the air with Apologetics.com. How are you tonight? Yeah. I have a question I told uh, the guy already earlier. I said, it's not about science, but it's about the Word of God. It's, um, at, what's that, uh, Titus chapter 2, 1 to 15, I'd like to know what's the reason why uh, Paul wrote this to Titus. What could be the ultimate reason why? Titus there 2? There are a lot of instructions there, but I would like to know what ultimate goal was he trying to accomplish by giving these uh, verses to Titus. I mean, this, why Ti- he has written this. Titus chapter 2? Yes. Yeah. Chapter two. Okay. Well, I will. Uh, I, I I'll look into that and give some thoughts. That's quite a. You know, I, I don't have time to read the entire chapter right now. Yeah, I know. Um, because you already have a little bit time already. Let's yes. see. It's it's talking about sound doctrine. It's talking about men being sober, reverent, temperate. It's about women yeah. being reverent. Uh, it's about. Yeah. Um, women teaching other young women to love their children, to be, you know, yeah. discreet, homemakers, obedient to their husbands. Um, so it's kind of some exhortations to uh, men and women. It's talking about the men to be sober-minded, to to do good works, to have um, sound seems speech. Like, seems like everything was, you know, seems like all the whole thing was given to Titus. I yeah. Mean, it's a lot with that. This is a great chapter on kind of, you know, how we ought to live, you know, the kind of the kind of character we should have, you know, uh, as 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 employees, we should be, you know, good employees, we should be um, you know, yeah, faithful. Also the yeah. Yeah. Um and then it talks about the grace of God which brings salvation to all men, you know, teaching yeah. us to deny deny our uh, our lusts to deny ungodliness that we should live soberly and righteously um, and that we should look forward to the appearing of God and Jesus Christ yeah um, that we should be looking forward to that that we should be living in light of that um, and that we should be redeemed from lawless deeds and uh, that we should be zealous for good works this is a Great, great chapter on kind of Christian character and Christian living. Yeah, but what what must be the the single ultimate purpose why Paul gave this to Titus? I think Paul was giving. I mean, you know, Titus was a young a young man, a young a young minister, and Paul was you know his mentor. Paul was discipling uh, Titus, and he was kind of just giving him some good godly wisdom. You know. Uh, as a pastor, you know, this kind of talks about teaching women, teaching men, and then oh. as as a whole, you know, we should all be looking forward to Christ and His return. Um, so just some good, sound wisdom in there. 
Yeah, seems like all the topic was already given to Titus except the everything, I think. Everything of the creation except the animals. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> everything is there. It's there. Slaves, the employer, the women, the singer. Yeah. That's why I couldn't really grasp what's the, uh, you know, the center point of what is Paul trying to accomplish with Titus. Since he is you know, imparting this to Titus, or is he leaving, or is he going to go leave him, Titus, behind? That's why he's yeah, no, Paul, yeah, no, Paul's definitely, you know, trying to set up these, these young men to, you know, kind of be self-sufficient. You know, Paul knows he's, you know, approaching the end of his ministry, the end of his time, and you know, he wants to leave behind a, a good legacy of, you know, faithful ministers, you know, faithful pastors. Um, but that's kind of all all I have time for tonight to kind of dig into that. But uh, great question and appreciate your call and uh, hope you'll call us again soon. Yes, I will call again because it's not enough. I'm sorry I was I was because I was trying to hear your phone number. I, oh, yeah, I didn't yeah. have a chance to get the phone number at in the beginning. So oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry about I, that. Yeah. Okay, next time I will call back. Thanks, Connie. Thank All right. you. God bless. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 All right. Thank you for that call, Connie. Um, about Titus. We're going to jump back into the topic at hand here. Uh, we were just talking kind of about science. You know, again, what is science in the business of discovering? And it's it's in the business of discovering these these equations, these immaterial realities that govern the world around us. Um, and so, you know, what I learned about science through the process of testing, observing, repeating, you know, I didn't I didn't discover physical truths. Science is not in the business of discovering physical truths. It's not in the business of discovering something that we can poke and touch and smell. It's 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 really not. Um, it's rather in the business of discovering immaterial or spiritual truths, these scientific laws, these patterns of regularity that represent an invisible and unseen framework of reality that governs literally every single thing we observe in the material world, right? And so the the ironic, you know, maybe sad, maybe discouraging truth is that those people who cling to what they can see and touch and taste and smell and hear, they fail to realize that all of those things are governed by these immaterial truths of reality discovered through science. And so, for example, you know, let's connect the dots here. Everything we see is obeying the laws that have been discovered, or it's obeying the laws of optical science, optics, right? We've discovered them through optical science. So everything we see is obeying, you know, what we understand to be the laws of optics, right? So there's an, there's an immaterial framework that discovers, that, that governs everything we see. Everything we hear with our ears, right? It's governed by the laws that we have discovered through the study of acoustics, Right? We have equations that can describe these sound waves that come into our ears and vibrate our eardrums, 
and everything we touch, we feel, is governed. It's based on the laws of motion, equal and opposite reactions, right? And the science of taste and smell, right? Things that we could smell in our nose, things that we can taste on our tongue, those are all connected and can be described by the laws of chemistry, these chemical reactions that are happening in our bodies. And we have to remember all of this is connected, really goes through our brain, which is a lot of electrical and you know signals. And all of those laws are governed by, we've discovered the laws of electricity and things like that. And so all that we sense, all that we see and touch and taste and smell, that these people, they love everything they can see and touch and taste and smell, you know, they don't believe in God, but they believe in all this. They can, well, all that they can see and touch and taste and smell, guess what? It ultimately goes back to these immaterial laws, these mathematical equations that have been discovered through scientific methodology over the past few thousand years. And this is where I believe we have one of the most powerful apologetic tools that can be used when it comes to science to help see God's invisible attributes through the understanding of things that have been made. And so part of our goal by God's grace and through his word and spirit is to help people stop suppressing what is so clearly true, right? And you don't have to know, you don't have to have the formulation of these various laws. You don't need to know F equals MA or, or V equals IR or whatever it is. You don't need to know these equations right, in order to speak about them in a way that demonstrates God's glory. And so, you know, my claim is that everything science discovers is immaterial or spiritual in its essence, right? It is an undisputed truth that what science discovers are regularities or patterns in our universe. They're there. They were there before us. They're, the, they're going to be there after us, right? And patterns... These patterns are the same today as they were yesterday and as they will be tomorrow. Why? Because they reflect the one who made them, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And these patterns can be described using mathematical formulas, and they describe to us the patterns by which objects behave in our universe. And all scientists believe in these regularities. All scientists, regardless of his or her professed beliefs about the past or the origin of life, you know, whether you're an evolutionist or a creationist, they all believe that there are more regularities out there for us to discover. No scientist is going to tell you they think we've discovered everything there is to discover, which is why science continues. These scientists also know that they are not the ones who invent these laws. They don't, they don't exist because some scientists declared them. They simply discover them. They're already there. We just discover them. We learn them. We, uh, we uncover them. And we find them like hidden treasures, right? The scientific process is simply our map. It helps us lead us to where they are buried. And so I want to talk about one thing, and then I'm going to jump over to a call here. Um, these invisible attributes that can be seen and understood through something that has been made. right? A simple example is to think, so how can we do that, right? This idea, is, is, this, a, is this a pretty simple concept? Right? Can you learn something about someone through what they have made for you? Okay? So, a simple example. Suppose you sit down at a nice restaurant to eat a nice meal. 
Can you learn something about the chef through looking at that meal that is prepared for you on the plate? Well, you look at the plate, you notice that it's it's arranged beautifully. It looks it looks amazing. Everything's neatly chopped. You have the silverware set out nicely. You have a nice drink. You know, it tastes amazing. It smells amazing. It's nice. It's hot. All those things, right? Well, what can you learn about the person who made that meal for you? You've never met them personally. You'll, you might not ever meet them, right? We do that all the time. We never meet our chefs most of the time. But we can learn about them, honestly, by just looking at what they've made for us, right? They know something about food. They know something about cooking it, making it look beautiful, presenting it well. They're skilled at chopping. They're, they, they understand how to make something look neat and organized and make it look nice. They know how to pair a nice drink with the meal. You know, and as you observe this meal that was made for you, you're starting to really identify invisible attributes about the person who made the meal. You may have never met them, but you're observing something that has been made by them, and you're discovering truths about their nature, their talents, their character. Pretty simple. Something we do every day. And in the same way, by looking at these things that have been made in creation, we can discover invisible attributes about the creator who made them. Right? Walter O'Brien, the dependability he sees in science is a reflection of the dependability of God. Right? And so, um, you know, one, one Christian theologian who's done a great job of highlighting some of these things is uh, Vern Poitras. He wrote some great books. One is called Redeeming Science. Another one's called Redeeming Mathematics, uh, Vern Poitras. Um, he does a great job kind of highlighting some of these um, disciplines of math and science in, as uniquely Christian endeavors uh, that point to the triune God of Scripture. And so um, we can look at some of those attributes, but before we do that, I'm going to jump over to a call before uh, we run out of time here. So uh, let's see. Michael from Panorama City has a comment on Genesis. How you doing, Michael? Welcome to the Apologetics.com radio show. Great. I'm basically, you're doing a great job by yourself, even though you're all alone, you're doing a great nah, job. I really... Thanks, man. So thank you. Yeah, um, a quick, before I, quickly to, um, the, I love your illustration about the water in the tub because it kind of fits into my comment. And, and before I mentioned that, uh, what you just said brought me that scripture. You talk about the chef with the food. The how do we really get to even know the chef even better by tasting the food? And the Bible says, Ooh, yeah. I read that, yeah, I read that point. verse today. In the psalm, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Ooh, amen. I like that. <laughs> yeah, amen. I'm going to have to yeah, add that. Right, thank you. The Genesis thing that I remember, I, I, I think it was Hugh Ross or one of his people, they were talking about young earth and old earth and so forth one time on KKLA years ago. And I remember calling in, and the comment I made was the fact that Adam and Eve, on the day they were born, the day that God created them on day number six, he was, if you look at them, they would, they would, be, they would look like grown-ups. They were, they were not crawling on the ground. They were walking. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, so my point was that that it's very difficult to know exactly the, the, the age of the earth, you know, but to saying because we don't, you know, I know based on the age of Adam and all those things, but 
the fact that the earth could be a lot younger than it looks because everything God created on the week the week of creation, he basically created them in a mature state. The you know, the animals were walking yeah. around and Adam and Eve were talking and walking, you yeah. know, so so that's something to take into consideration. Absolutely, yeah. You know, on day seven, right? Uh, one right. one day after Adam was made, he probably looked like a grown man, right? He was re he was really one day old, uh, but he looked right. like a he looked like a you know an adult. Exactly. You know, so yeah, it's um, you know we have to kind of take some of that into consideration, and again, we have to really look at what God has said in His Word, you know, and then we right. take that to the world around us, and we use that as our as our lens, as our reference point, to help us understand those things that we have, uh, that we discover, that we learn. Right. So, I, also, yeah, 100% agree with you. Right. And lastly, I was thinking when you were saying how that brilliant, supposedly brilliant person is saying, oh, only what's stable and reliable you could depend on. And my, my question to that, which I've said to other people, I said, if science is so reliable and stable, why do you have to change the science book every six months or every year? You know, and now yeah. we don't even have Pluto as a planet again. So there's constant different right. things coming up. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's very true. You know, science itself has has changed a lot. You know, we continue to, uh, you know, there's there's lots of, you know, theories that are left by the wayside, you know, that that never made it, that they thought were the right answer at one point and then they they find out that it wasn't um right you know that's a that's a really really good point as well you know another thing you know on that topic you know walter o'brien that really smart gentleman um yeah. you know i would ask him you know well when it you know how how many times have you observed life coming from non-life Right, because because mm -hmm. that's what an that's what an evolutionist has to believe that somewhere right. along the way, life sprang forth from something that was not alive. Right, and right. he says if it happens thirty-two times in a row, it's dependable. But I would ask him, have you seen life spring from non-life thirty-two times in a row? And the answer he would say is absolutely not. He no All one's right. seen yeah. that. No one's seen that. But yet he believes it. He believes somewhere along the way, you know, rocks and no, you know non-living things gave rise to life, and right. so you apply his same thinking. Thirty-two times it happens. You believe it. P apply that to the beginning of life, and he would have to abandon his own thinking, his own worldview, because he's never seen it happen. He's never seen, you know, a f you know a monkey turn into a human thirty-two times in a row. Right. And so we yeah, need we was, need to be able to press that. We need to be able to press that when we hear it, and we need to be able to recognize it. Exactly, I would say. And, both and we're about thirty Christian thirty seconds and, left. So, what's your last oh, words? Okay. What's okay, your? I would say both Christian and atheist is by faith, but Christian faith is based on what you can see and everything. The atheist faith is based on nothing you can say. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for that comment, Michael. God bless you, man. God Call bless. us again. Okay. Yeah, and we'll we'll end with that. Yeah, we put our faith in 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 that which justly justly deserves our trust, and that is God and His Word, because He is dependable and He is true. 
And this entire world is dependable because it has been created by God and for God and through God. So uh, with that, we're just about out of time. I would like to thank you all uh, for your attention. Thank you, Jose, for being on the, on the buttons over there. And we'll see you next week. Keep the faith. God bless.